The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome back, everyone. So you probably know tonight is the last of our winter Buddha studies classes, studying the seven factors of awakening. These are the qualities of mind that when they're present and strong and in balance with each other, like I mentioned, incline the mind to awakening. And as, I, as you might remember that first week, I mentioned how um, in our tradition, our early Buddhist tradition, just recalling these seven factors and keeping them in mind is a cause for well-being. And we should really check this out. I encourage you not to be dismissive. You know, like when you're feeling a little heavy and full of doubt about life and who you are or whatever, to uh, sit down somewhere comfortable. Doesn't have to be, you know, in your meditation posture. Could be. And just bring these to mind. And, you know, if you need the support of an article on the seven factors of awakening or one of the passages from the Buddhist teachings, fine, then pull that out to help you read a paragraph or two. Oh yeah, mindfulness is one of the seven factors. Does this heart, is this mind capable of manifesting this quality of, of mindful awareness, of recognizing the present moment? And when you realize, yes, in fact, it can, then dwell on that, keep that in mind, until you feel that natural appreciation that we naturally feel when we see something of real beauty and goodness and wholesomeness. And then the investigation quality of mind. The mind is actually interested in what's helpful and what's not helpful. How it is that things in my heart mind get bound up. How it is that things here loosen up, let go, free up. And bringing to mind that capacity to be steadfast and persistent like, no, no, this really helps, this really matters. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to keep this in mind, that quality of effort or energy. And then joy, the more we're committed to the three active qualities of mindfulness, you know, that mindfulness has a passive or a receptive quality, but it also has this like keeping the present moment in mind, this wholesome desire of not wanting to forget, oh yeah, this is how it is, you know, like this is being known. It, it needs some act of peace, otherwise the mind slides into forgetfulness and complacency. So the joy, the tranquility, the stillness of concentration, and this beautiful, radiant, pragmatic, functional balance we call equanimity. I mean, it really has the flavor, the, intu- the intuitive flavor of, oh, this is, this is the way, both the, the means to awakening and the flavor of awakening or freedom. So if that means for a lot of us, and I'll talk about this tonight, we have to reform our idea of what we think equanimity is. Because, you know, whether for you it has connotations of indifference, having given up, I can't be greedy, because I know that, I know was enough to know that that's not the way, and I can't be aversive, because I know that's being bad. So I'm just going to kind of cower here in the corner of my life, you know, and try to avoid being greedy or aversive. And I guess that's equanimity. <laughs> 
And I really like just to work with that idea of, uh, you know, because <clears throat> a lot of the well-being we have in our lives is when we create something that to us seems beautiful. And for some of you who've raised children, not that your children are always beautiful, but there's something about helping somebody come into life and grow up and find their way as imperfect as that process probably is for you, or something you've done at work, or something you've done as an artist or as an activist, or something you've done with your mind, your heart, right, or practice. And so it's really good to see, just like when you really do a good job cleaning up your kitchen and really get it orderly and just the way you like it, but how much more so when we start to water the qualities of the mind, feed the qualities of the mind that are deserving of being watered and fed and supported, and, and we choose to not water, not feed the qualities of mind that aren't helpful. And we start to get a sense like, wow, this is a good-looking garden. I mean, it's starting to manifest real power, functionality, nimbleness, creativity, resilience. It's like the kind of mind that can handle human existence. That's the kind of human mind part, you know, we'd be interested in. Gil Franzel, um breaks down the or examines this word equanimity, most of us know that one word that gets translated as equanimity is upeka, upeka. And uh, the root of the word means to look over. So it's, it's not actually being distant, but it has that flavor of breath, the big picture. Some of you remember this little acronym that Joko Beck uses ABC, a bigger container, right? So calling on our capacity for equanimity, we can do this by that sense of the calling on the vast, big perspective. You know, we, we know this, like we step back, we're in the weeds in some argument or some righteousness and we step back and we realize those on the other side that I'm opposing, they're human beings. They have their own set of facts. Like I have my, you know, it's just a bigger picture. Oh, they have their needs. I have some needs. Doesn't mean we're not gonna try to make things turn out a particular way, but our engagement is now able to include the big picture. And we should always assume the picture can get bigger, the perspective can get bigger. However big our perspective feels right now, maybe it can be even bigger. And then the other word that gets translated in the tradition as equanimity is, um, I'm going to read it here because it's uh, not so easy pronouncing these Pali words, tatra majja tata. Tatra, Majja, Tatra, Tata. And here, this one gets translated more as an inner balance and relates more to that. I don't know if I mentioned it last week around samadhi and tranquility, but, you know, with uh, that sense of well-being and calm and tranquility and stillness, there's an energetic sense, a very clear energetic sense of solidity or being held when there's a lot of concentration, when the mind is gathered in the present moment. And that that inner well-being, that inner calm, allows for there to be more and more of an unshakable balance. And the way to think about this other aspect of equanimity is a shift in allegiance. Because often our well-being 
comes from what I have. Like I have some health. I have a couple clothes. My body feels relatively healthy and comfortable as I'm sitting here. I have a sense... I mean, there are a lot of things, experiences, ideas, I can call on to build a sense of well-being right now. Right? And, and hopefully you do too. This person loves me, you know. My cat tolerates me, <laughs> or whatever it might be. I live in a relatively safe place. And we can call on these things. I have money in the bank. You know, if my car breaks down, I can afford to fix it. And that, that can create a sense of well-being. But we can leave behind that well-being. We're not losing all those things necessarily, but we're recognizing the limitations of those. It's still nice to have those things, of course, but they're still limited. And there can be this uh, balance and this well-being that arises from a kind of inner sense of stability that is in part arising because the mind is gathered, but part of it too is just the understanding that the mind can be gathered. You know, when we have had experiences of samadhi and tranquility enough in our lives, enough times in our lives, then it's almost like there's a, you know, what are those in physics, wormholes, I don't understand them, or string theory, you know, I know enough to say those words, but. But as I imagine what that means, which of course may have nothing to do with modern physics, but just this idea of locality and distance. So even if on the surface I look like I'm a fried, reactive, entangled human being, having had enough experiences of that deeper sense of well-being, tranquility, calm, still, open, empty, then there's like a wormhole, there's a connection even in the midst of being emotionally entangled, some heat of reactivity or whatever it might be, and we can call on that. And it allows us to be okay being a reactive, entangled human being. doesn't mean we're not going to do our best to resolve the triggers or reduce harm to ourselves or to others. Knowing that there's this reservoir of well-being and ease and calm and space and openness, it actually allows us to navigate the wildness of our own personalities and everybody else's personalities that we have to navigate. So that inner balance is, uh, yeah, it's just something we can call on. The, the other one to kind of uh, look over, it's really going right to the sense of space, you know, that big pic- that big picture. But this sense of inner well-being that arises in the uh, most trustworthy way, it arises from a wisdom that isn't a function of conditions. So that's that idea of the wormhole, so that even though the present moment conditions might be quite triggering, there's a connection with something that isn't dependent on conditions a stability that isn't dependent on conditions. And what's important here is we actually need to look for that, or be not so much actually look, but be interested in sensing whether or not that is here and now, however faint. Like we have to get good at recognizing, intuiting it, because that's what helps it grow. You know, generally with wholesome qualities of mind, 
like I think I said in the first couple of weeks, remembering them and remembering how to recognize them and remembering to keep them in mind is how we grow these seven factors, including equanimity. If we never think about equanimity, think to check, is there any balance, any of that functional, radiant, beautiful balance, is there any of that around? Like, do we know how to be interested in it? How to use the word, you know, the concept, the study that we've done in a functional way to sort of get intimate with the qualities of mind that are here and now. And not immediately go to the ugly ones, <laughs> you know, the, the dysfunctional ones, the naughty ones, which we tend to want to, you know, keep our enemies close, you know. And there's some, you know, we do want to be able to recognize the unwholesome qualities that are present when they're present. But it can become an, an obsession, an, an imbalance, where we're not as good, we haven't taken the time to get good at recognizing the wholesome. Oh yeah, the beautiful qualities. And it's useful, it's helpful to keep it in mind. And then, and then we can kind of start to take equanimity on the road. Once we're able to remember there is this thing called equanimity, the Buddha says it has the flavor of awakening. And remember, awakening, whether we know it or not, is what this heart actually is interested in. Like that's how we know the flavor of awakening, is that when we sense it, the sense is, that's what my heart really wants, really trusts, really wants to orient around, gravitate towards, keep in mind. Then, of course, the force of habit will bring us back to our ordinary habits, qualities of mind, and we'll forget that there is this thing called equanimity that my heart really trusts, really wants, really gravitates towards. But we'll get re better at remembering it and remembering to recognize it and remembering to keep it in mind. How to keep it in mind. These are skill sets that we're learning with all seven factors. But in particular, equanimity. Because, you know, equanimity, when you get to know it, you'll see it's like the perfect bridge. Like... So you know, generally spiritual seekers fall into one of two camps. Those who trust and are reliant more on the wisdom end of things and those who trust and are reliant more on the love end of things. But the wonderful things, thing about getting to know equanimity as an actual happening in our heart is it is a perfect bridge between love and wisdom. It really has qualities of both. It, it is the... That's why the heart, naturally, all hearts, this isn't particular to some people, only Buddhists are interested in equanimity. Buddhism is just spiritual technology. It's not actually, I mean, I know a lot of religious spiritual traditions might say that about their, you know, practices. This is the one. But, you know, the Buddha was a technician, like, okay, we got a mind. Let's get to know the mind and understand how to take care of this mind. We have this life. Let's get intimate so we know how to take care of it. So know the difference between what feeds contracted, oppressive states for ourselves and those around us, the wider world even, and what leads to states of full release and deep peace, and this radiant balance of wisdom and love. It's really that marriage of intimacy, which is more the love side, and non-attachment, which is the wisdom side, right? That's a nice way to 
remember the taste of equanimity is that marriage of intimacy, not afraid to include it all, not afraid to feel, to touch, to be touched. And the non-attachment allows us to be close, and the ability to be close purifies the non-attachment, develops, strengthens the non-attachment. And this is what the heart recognizes as, ah, this is the way. This is the freedom, the peace, the release. I can't believe it's possible. Right? It's so, in a way, from our ordinary states, it's just so out of the box. It resolves problems we never suspected could be resolved. You know, it's like we've been walking around with heavy backpacks, not more than one, you know, 50 pounds on the back, two suitcases, you know, a couple bags with a shoulder strap, a bunch of stuff in our pockets, and then just having a flavor of no weight. The release of all that psychic entanglement, oppressive weight. Oh. It's kind of initial taste, it's so giddy. You know, the energy one feels with even, you know, gradual insights, gradual deepenings. This is why people get out of balance and they just want to talk about meditation or got to do this retreat because we don't know what to do with the energy, even with little, you know, gradual awakening and deepening of insight. So we have to, we should, it's the other warning sign we should have at the center, you know. You know, people might appear overly enthusiastic about something that seems sort of silly, like sitting and observing the mind. This is from Joseph Goldstein's book. Uh, It's quite old now, but it's just a great manual for our practice called Insight Meditation. It's one of Joseph's earlier books. And his line was, uh, it's okay, let me just feel this. And you know, it might, for some of you, it might be something different. Can this be okay? What happens if I relax? I mean, there's any number of ways to evoke the power, stability, goodness of equanimity. But it all has something to do with moving in the direction, like that change of allegiance, where my, the idea I have, and then I'm living out of that idea, is that my well-being depends on getting what I like and getting away from what I don't like. And that could be externally in terms of our external conditions, but also in terms of my internal states. Like, I don't want to take that thought. So we're in the struggle with our likes and dislikes, and we get some well-being in that struggle enough times that we stay addicted, thinking that's the way to feel good. And equanimity arises when there are times when we just have a lot of good conditions, and then we notice, I don't need the moment to be different than it is right now. I don't need to be in the struggle with my likes and dislikes because my experience right now is pretty much dominated by things I like. I'm comfortable in all those different ways that we like to be comfortable. And so then we have a a fragile equanimity because it's dependent on those circumstances. But if we have some curiosity in those moments, it will beg the question like, it would be nice to feel this at ease, this balanced, this absence of fear, this absence of being pushed around by my likes and dislikes all the time. Not just when I'm, you know, have a really nice set of moments where nothing's triggering me. So it can make the mind curious. 
But the nice thing about this uh, having some tastes of equanimity, whether it comes from just having a nice situation or having some deeper wisdom, like one of the things that happens pretty regularly to people who have a, a regular sitting practice is there will be a moment, it might be just physical pain, it might be some uh, recent memory that's tormenting you. I did that. I can't believe that. You know, and it's just, you keep regurgitating it, get the same reaction. And then, you know, to just practice kicks in, and there's this, uh, whether it's a wider perspective or a more subtle perspective, that the mind becomes more inclusive. And at some point, it becomes not a problem, even though I still did that thing three hours ago, or I'm still feeling this pain in my body, or I'm still too cold. But the mind found a way to feel what it feels like to have done that stupid thing three hours ago, let's say. So it's made peace with whatever version of the retelling, you know, of that memory, whatever mental image might arise, whatever voice might appear in my mind about that thing I did three hours ago, whatever thing I might imagine, consequence in the future, nothing scares the mind because it's seen it enough and has seen it enough with wisdom to realize, oh yeah, that's just that thought, that's just that memory, that's just that feeling, that's just that. Basically, wisdom has made peace called the bluff of everything the habit-based mind might throw at it. Yeah. It's just that. Oh, it's just that. And then all of a sudden, we can go from having been tormented by whatever the difficult experience was to no problem. And that really, all those experiences, you know, like ten thousands, ten thousands of those experiences. So then when I say to myself, can this be okay? That statement I say to myself, coming out of wisdom and compassion, it is backed up with those 10,000 moments where I actually was at ease with something that earlier had been tormenting me. Have you had that experience where you had a lot of pain in your knee, let's say, or your back? And then at some time later in the set, it's not like the physical whatever pain, sensory experience hasn't sh shifted, but the resistance has gone away. There, the, there is no part of the body and the mind that is currently resisting the pain in the body, or the painful memory, or the idea about the future that's scary. There's that peace of the wisdom that knows can this be okay? Yeah. How do I know it can be okay? Because it's okay, because right now I'm realizing in real time a body, heart, and mind that's not resisting the way it is. So it's not theoretical, it's real. So when you, whatever kind of phrase you want to use to help you remember, you know, you got a really torturous, busy day, you know? And we have, you know, ancient conditioning to say, well, I should, I should be tight because I have a bad day, <laughs> you know. And I can't really relax until it's done. Because we have this idea that I have a bad day. So then, of course, to fit my conception, I have to feel burdened by it. And then wisdom can kick in and, uh, and uh, calling upon equanimity, well, can this be okay? Yeah, it's going to be a torturous day. There's a lot of things I have to do that are unpleasant. I can't make it pleasant. But I can be curious, like, can it be okay to have a day like this day's going to be? Can there be balance and ease and well-being even in the midst of one difficult thing after another in my day. 
And I've had well-being in the midst of challenging conditions. So maybe now too. And, and think of it as this shift in allegiance between thinking that well-being only comes from getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want, to there is a well-being that isn't dependent on conditions. And this should feel like a real radical uh, difference between these two allegiances. And we want to keep checking this out. Because the more we recognize this wisdom and equanimity and this great love, you could say too, you know, because great love knows how to include conditions, knows how to be intimate. You know, our partner, our child, our whatever, might be having a really hard time or we ourselves might be really having a hard time, but we still might be able to show up for ourselves or for the other because we care. And because too, we know that we can't, it's just unworkable to close our heart. It always seems to make sense in a superficial sense. I can't deal with you anymore. I'm gonna turn away. But when we really look at it, it's more stressful to be ignorant. You know, we think ignorance is bliss, but it's only because we're superficial. Ignorance is stressful. To be unaware, to be unconcerned, to imagine that we're not affected by what's going on is itself suffering. Not knowing we're suffering is suffering. And it's totally understandable that we choose oblivion, you know, in all the different ways we, our favorite ways of being oblivious, whether it's watching too much TV or drugs and alcohol or obsessive gossiping, but whatever we do to fill up the space so we don't have to have a more sensitive connection with all that's moving in our lives and around us. But when we start, you know, cultivating our practice and becoming more sensitive in our lives, we will just naturally move towards being more sensitive. And it doesn't mean we don't go on Buddhist retreats or take a vacation or watch a funny show. It just means that the new default is to inhabit the middle, you know, that other meaning of equanimity, of being right in the middle. And finding that quality of wisdom and calm and love that allows me to be right in the middle. And it's so much more trustworthy because nothing will surprise us. Because the middle isn't a fixed stance, like I know what the middle is and I'm there. Like the middle is this ambiguous and uncertain place where we don't have expectations because it's so alive and uncertain. So because we don't have expectations, nothing surprises us. So yeah, sometimes it's like this because right now it's like this. And you can see that in your life. This is, you know, people mention this when they're, you know, talking to me and just feeling grateful for the practice and then want to do a testimonial, which is can be a really useful thing for folks to do and for other folks to hear. And in the way people do testimonials with their Buddhist practice is they say, this happened to me and I was okay. I mean, that's kind of a classic practice testimonial. You know, all shit broke loose and I was okay. I was so amazed that my heart, my mind seemed sort of balanced. And I just did the next thing. There's a great quote from uh, somebody from the Civil Rights Movement that I got from Gina Sharp. I don't know if you know Gina Sharp, a well-known Dharma teacher. Um, 
And I used to know Gina way back in the 90s. I haven't really seen her much lately. Oh, yeah, here it is. And the person, her name was Bernice Johnson Regan. I don't know if people have heard of her. She was involved in some of the civil rights stuff in Georgia back in the 60s, early 60s. And she's reflecting on the sit-ins at the lunch counters that maybe you've heard about. And she said, now that uh, now I sit back and look at some of the things we did, and I say, what in the world came over us? But death had nothing to do with what we were doing. If somebody shot us, we'd, we would be dead. And when people died, we cried and went to funerals. And we went and did the next thing the next day, because it was really beyond life and death. It was really like sometimes, you know, what you're supposed to be doing. It was really like sometimes you know, it was really like sometimes you know what you, you're supposed to be doing. And when you know what you're supposed to be doing, it's somebody else's job to kill you. Right? So that's such a powerful statement. You know, just that, I mean, we don't really know what's, going on in their heart, but just that sense of matter-of-factness, this needs to be done. Something needed to be done. For whatever reasons, we were the right people to do it. Our job was to go sit at that counter or whatever they did, because it was the right thing to do. And if other people's job were going to do something violent in response, that was their job their business, not my business. My business was to do the right thing. And it reminds me of that teaching from Shantideva, which I'll paraphrase it, many of you have heard it, that if there's something we need to do in our lives, well then do it. And if there's a situation in your life and at that moment you don't know what to do or you doesn't seem like there's anything appropriate to do, well then the, in that moment there's nothing for you to do. But whether the moment there is something for you to do, or in that moment there isn't really anything for you to do, what's the reason to be tight or heavy or out of balance? So if there's something to do, we can do it in that place of balance, because it's the thing to do. And if there's nothing to do, well, then there's nothing to do. We can do that nothing, not act not being active, from that place of balance. And you see, it really evokes that sense of fearlessness. You know, in, in our meditation practice and generally in our spiritual life, we will see things that are profoundly beautiful, but we'll also see things that are profoundly disturbing about ourselves and about our world. Unnerving, right? Counter to what we thought was true. And it, it just, it's just such a good thing to keep coming back to. Well, is there anything I need to do about it? Because if there is, Mark, do it. If there's something helpful to do right now, do it. If there's nothing helpful to do right now, there's nothing helpful to do. And wouldn't it be great to have that kind of fearlessness all the way through? You know, I just blew the most important interview of my life. I really wanted that job, or I really wanted that person to like me, or whatever, you know, interaction that we were just part of. But we, whatever, for whatever reason, messed up. Okay, well, is there something for me to do now? Well, then I'll do it. I'll do my best doing what needs to be done. And if there's nothing to do, well, then there's nothing to do about that then. I'll do the next thing. Put the dishes away. There was a time at the at, at the time of the Buddha where someone came to the Buddha, a general from some army, one of the armies, and he complained to the Buddha that the Dharma, your teachings, are, seems like you're teaching mere passivity. And the Buddha replied. In this simple way, you know, I teach inactivity in what is unwholesome, unhelpful, and I teach activity in what is helpful. 
So equanimity, the shadow or the near enemy, as we call it in Buddhism, is indifferent. The shadow or the near enemy of equanimity is indifference, that kind of complacency like, oh, I don't want to get involved or it's too complicated or it may, it may not work and I don't want to be set up and embarrassed by doing something that doesn't turn out. I don't want to take a chance. I'd rather sit on the sidelines. But that's not equanimity. That sounds a lot like fear. And, and in the world of chasing our likes and running from our dislikes, like I don't want to embarrass myself. Yeah, we're trying to avoid what we don't like. So, we're, we're really sensing a way of being in the world where instead of the mind getting entangled with the sense of a doer doing my life, we're really taking refuge more and more in that confidence, like that sense of the space, the space, the total space of the present moment, you know, everything, not our idea of everything, because one of the things we learn through our practice of mindful awareness is that being present is always has that flavor of totality. Like, just check that out right now, if you would. When we feel, when we're willing to relax and open, is there anything left out? Is there any, like, inside, outside? Any boundary? And when we open to the present moment, it's all inclusive. And so when we, when that's our refuge, then the activity of my personality is just part of the activity of the totality of the moment. And we hear ourselves saying something, we see ourselves doing something, and we're not telling ourselves we should do that, nor are we telling ourselves we shouldn't do that. There's simply that balance, that radiant balance that knows, now it's like this. And that radiant balance that can discern, in a sense, read, comprehend the big picture. Like, whether what I'm doing, moment by moment, not like a one-time conclusion, but as we're living our day, doing our day, you know, as, a, as the activity of nature, the wisdom and the balance of equanimity allows that discernment, like what's, what seeds are getting planted, what's getting set in motion, is it helpful or hurtful, harmful? So there's, you know, it's exactly the way that leads to skillfulness, because it's, auto-correcting in real time all the time, never stopping, never imagining, right? Because equanimity doesn't have a fixedness to it. Okay, I'm doing the right thing. Like, if that thought were to arise, okay, I'm doing the right thing. Steady, steady as you go, Mark, right? That would just be, well, yeah, sometimes that thought arises. You know, it's just that thought being known. Because the activity doesn't depend on a fixed point, like I'm doing the right thing, or I'm screwing up. The skillfulness comes from that radiant balance that allows the heart to be really intimate, which allows the heart, wisdom, to discern what's getting set in motion, whether it's helpful or not. Wouldn't it be nice if every morning, you know, when we got up and brushed our teeth and did what we did, and then we just, you know, did our meditate, did all the stuff. It's like, okay, let it rip. I mean, we, we should do it in the first moment we wake up. Even the waking up process and the using the bathroom and the dressing, all that is part of letting it rip. Not, oh God, I got to do me today, which is generally the attitude we have. And that is such an oppressive attitude. I've got this 165-pound body that I've got to drag around, I've got to throw food in, I've got to poop it out, and I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and then I, you know, I, I do something's right, but I do things, something's wrong, and I've got to clean up those messes, and, and then there's another day, and then another week, and no wonder 
life feels hard and heavy, as opposed to, isn't it amazing? Life living through, I mean, it's just like nature doing what nature does. And really, this allegiance with the space of wisdom, the balance, that sense of well-being that's not dependent on birth or death, success or failure, you know, that's why we have the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Yeah, let it rip. And it's not like we're giving up, it's not like we don't care, it's the way to express caring. It's the way that actually is compassionate for our own life and for everyone's life. So it's, it is the way of being all in. Chasing our likes and dislikes is not the way to be all in, it's the way to get tight and be disconnected. It's sort of like chasing our tail. We miss the big picture. We're endlessly chasing our tail. And when we do get a little sense of the absurdity of it, and the, yeah, it, just, it just breaks our heart, but we don't know any better, we just get sucked right back in. That's the great tragedy, that people do have a little awakening just to see that the way I'm living isn't helping, isn't onward leading, but we get pulled back in. That's why when we start to sense that there might be a way, not that we have perfect certainty that the Buddha, Buddhist teachings are really the way, but we might get a little bit of a sense like, this feels pretty wise, let me check this out a little bit more. A lot of energy builds, because it, it begins to replace the, deaden, the deadening feeling of helplessness, of just being caught in samsara. And that's why we justify doing stuff we know that ultimately isn't helpful, like caring about things that are ultimately aren't that important to care about, like TV shows, for example. You know, I mean, I watch TV, and um, you know, if I start a series that I think is entertaining, I, I really want to finish it. If I'm reading a book that I like, I really want to finish it. Like, it hurts to not finish it, because there's a dependence, like, don't take this away from me. This is all I got, these simple pleasures. You know, and then there's lunch, and there's sleep. What else is there? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like that. I can pet my cat. It's okay. You know, there are a few things that that uh, are pleasant that I, I, you know, somewhat reliable to get me through the day, through the week, through the month. But when we're really honest, what kind of life is that? And so we want to, it's subtle, but we want to kind of uh, remember equanimity and wisdom and the peace of awakening, the peace of a heart that's not dependent on what's conditioned. But we have to remember, like, even that that's something to look for. And then we have to look for it. We have to learn how to sense it and intuit it, and to, in a sense, taste it like, what does that taste like? Oh, yeah. Is that a trustworthy taste? Yeah. I could grow to like this. You know? There's a, a line that I like to s- repeat from, uh, I heard, I read probably in Ajahn Tan- uh, Tanisro's uh, writings, and he was uh, reporting on one of his Thai forest masters, one of his teachers. Um, where he practiced as a monk in Thailand before coming back to the West. And his, one of his teachers said, you know, when you taste real peace and release and freedom, it won't matter that it isn't personal, that it isn't, in a sense, something you can grasp as yours. It doesn't matter when you taste it. Because it, the flavor is, this is trustworthy. And it's trustworthy precisely because it's unconditioned. It's not about me, and it isn't even about me being good. Being good, in a sense, like practicing well, uncovers something, but what is uncovered isn't mine, and it isn't about me. It's about the way it is that's been obscured 
because we're chasing our likes and dislikes erotically, and that fills the space of the mind. Even when we give up chasing our likes and dislikes, it's just another way of chasing our likes and dislikes, right? We don't really get out of that vortex. That In Buddhism, we call that samsara. The very nature of it is to draw the mind back in to the whirlpool, to the vortex. So maybe I'll leave it here. There's more I could say, but... Uh, given that it's our last night, it might be nice to take a couple questions or even your own reflections and learnings that you're willing to share with the group, whether you're online or here in the room. Uh, if you're in the room, I'm going to ask you to step up and speak here so I can hand you the mic so people online can hear you if you don't mind. You don't have to have the camera on you if you don't want. Yeah, but what comes to mind, feel free to raise your digital hand if you're online. Or just, yeah, Mary, you want to come up? Do you mind? Appreciate that. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little to the, the uniqueness or the differences between mindfulness, concentration, and investigation. I know that they're they're different, but they tend to swim a little in my head, and it, yeah, a little explanation about their unique qualities. Yeah, and part of the problem is that in the West, you know, like people might refer to Kamagana as a center that teaches mindfulness. So we use that word mindfulness, mindful awareness, awareness practice. Uh, sometimes specifically, like it's being used in the seven factors, but sometimes in a more global way that includes the wisdom and the concentration and the tranquility and all the other wholesome qualities that come in our practice. But awareness or sati, mindfulness, um, as a more specific, is when we remember, right? It has a a connotation of remembering. What are we remembering? What are we remembering? We're remembering to recognize, oh, this is being known. So that's all it's doing. It's we're keeping in mind that awareness can know what the mind is doing, what the mind is knowing. Because the mind can be conscious, but we can be unaware in a sense of what we're conscious of. We're sort of lost in activity. We're still, like you can be uh, driving home conscious, but you're not necessarily mindfully aware. You're not aware that you're driving home when you're driving home, but you're conscious enough to turn left when you need to turn left. So there's uh, that reflective knowing, oh yeah, this is what the mind is knowing right now. That's sati. Investigation is when there's mindfulness, then that part of the mind we call investigation, investigation of the way it is, it's this part of wisdom, it's really an active part of wisdom, maybe the most obvious part of wisdom, that realizes now that I'm with some continuity remembering to recognize the present moment, I can discern like I can kind of connect the dots and I can discern how I'm relating and whether that's making things tight or whether that's helping loosen things up, free things up. So we say in a way we become a moral being when we're investigating because now it matters how I'm showing up, how I'm relating because I know the difference between showing up in ways that are unskillful in, for myself and others, and showing up in ways that are skillful for myself and others. Simply because I have mindful awareness, and I'm using it to do the investigation. So mindfulness is a supporting cause for that discernment. Oh, look at when I'm relating with this attitude of anger, then I do, and then this, and then, aha, uh-huh, things get tight, things get problematic. Concentration 
Tranquility and concentration is sort of the natural after effect of continuity of awareness, investigation, steadfastness, like continuity, right? Then, because the mind is unifying in the present moment, it's going to naturally feel some joy. Joy will trigger a deepening tranquility and ease. The other activities of mind will start to unify naturally, organically, in the service of being aware of the present moment so that it can discern what's helpful and not helpful. Because it's discerning what's helpful and not helpful, it's doing less of the unhelpful stuff and more of the helpful stuff. That just supports more settling. Eventually, the mind becomes very settled. It's not doing anything that's extra. That's called concentration. When the mind has abandoned, like, why bother to want something? So it has the peace of not wanting. It has contentment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Yeah, Tom, do you want to go ahead and unmute yourself? Yeah, hi, thank you. Um, you touched briefly on how increasing sensitivity can, can lead to an excess of enthusiasm. You mentioned that briefly. And I experienced that, um, and it almost, it doesn't end well when that happens, because I, it, it, it kind of increases the likelihood that I'm going to get bored, because I want to feed the sensitivity in some way. Because of the excitement? I guess I, I, I want something to focus on to be sensitive to. Yeah, but it's kind of like, this is part of that shift in allegiance, where we have to taste the peace of simplicity and the quiet and the stillness and the silence and the sense of space and the more refined sense of balance. And we have to, in a sense, ask the heart, do you like this? We can't presume that the heart has actually uh, sensed whether this is trustworthy or not. So we have to actually sense, do I need to look for something exciting? Because that's like when we've been eating Doritos, it's like other kinds of food doesn't taste like anything because we've had such a strong, intense taste experience. But actually we, we might much more prefer something refined and subtle, you know, like the nutty chewiness of brown rice. Even though, you know, we might think, of oh, brown rice, I'll take Doritos any day. But I tell you, when you're on retreat and you're getting oatmeal every morning and brown rice, you know, five days out of the week um, with your main meal, you know, and you really chew it, it's like, there's something really satisfying about neutrality, being intimate with neutrality, that that feels grounding and wholesome. And that's true with these more ordinary states of a mind, the balance of mind. There's a quiet radiance, enlivened radiance. It's not boring. But that doesn't mean it doesn't initially appear boring. But that's your that's our mind's interpretation. This is boring. And we believe that interpretation, and what we have to do is realize, yeah, that's an interpretation, but let me check it out. Let me actually feel into, rest with, get interested in, let this really have its effect. So that I have a sense of if this is onward leading in the direction of what the heart actually wants if this is trustworthy. Yeah, thank you, Tom. should probably leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.